Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. And as you are turning there, this word up on the screen, what does it mean? And for those who are listening online, the word up on the screen is play, P-L-A-Y. First church, what does the word up on the screen mean? Fun, okay? How would you define that word? Okay, okay, I'm going to start it. Does everybody know the word play? Go ahead and raise your hand if you know it. Okay? Okay, just checking. It's an action. Okay? JJ, how would you define the word play? I saw you raise your hand. Oh, you were just, sorry, wasn't raising his hand. Dorothy, how do you? Thank you. It's what you push on the remote when you want the movie to go. A performance. What kind? A theater play. Like I'm going to go see Shakespeare in the park. Okay. Stacia played also. To frolic. To play a game. Okay. You play a role in your life, okay? To have fun, to pretend, to relax. Imagination. Huh. Running. That's not play for some people, but for others it is. As a noun, you guys have already hit on most of these, play could be something recreational. It could be a type of children's activity. It could be a theatrical performance. You go to the play in the park. As a verb, it could mean to engage in sport, to give a musical performance. You guys hit that one, Stacia playing uh, the, the keyboard. It could mean to pretend. If someone is played, it means that they have been taken advantage of. Play. When you see the word, how do you know what it means? If you were to see this word on a piece of paper, in a book, in a letter, how would you know what it meant? Okay, context, that's a big part of it. So let's pretend for a minute. You get the word play, and you've got this compilation of writings. A whole bunch of different writings, okay? Different authors, different genres, different time frames in which these writings were written, spread out over decades. And let's pretend that the word play is only in this compilation of writings once. A a large compilation of writings. It's only in there once. How do you know which definition to use? Because you just rattled off like 10 or 15 different definitions, Now, what really throws a wrench into things is that words change meaning over time. Correct? Take for something simple, the word bad. Okay? It used to mean the opposite of good. Now, when someone says it, it could mean really, really cool or awesome. Same with the word tight. It used to mean your belt after Thanksgiving. Or the opposite of loose. Now, it too could mean something really, really cool or awesome. 
Dude, Chris's longboarding this morning was tight. It was bad. Words change meaning over time sometimes. So, back to our word play. Let's say that a lot of years have passed. It's the only time this word is used in this entire compilation of writing. We recognize that words can change meaning over time. You come across this word, how do you define it? How do you know what it means? And how do you know if your definition of it is what the author intended to get across? Context, maybe, but maybe not. Would you be willing to explore the possibility in this imaginary compilation of writings that your word, the definition of how you define play, could actually be defined some other way? Would you be willing to explore the possibility that the way somebody else says it, what it means, could be a possibility? I like this conversation. (laughs) Try you. This morning, we are going to look at a word in the New Testament that is only used once in the entire New Testament. It's a word that actually has quite a few potential meanings, and it's a word that much of an entire doctrine, an entire practice of our faith has been built around. And I want to ask right off the bat, are we willing to wrestle with whether or not we could see that word differently? Now, before we get there, we need to pray. Uh, then we're going to tread lightly because uh, we've got some murky waters to get through before we get to that word. So let's pray. Jesus, this is your scripture. This is your word uh, given to us um, over the course of time uh, through many different writers, uh, in many different genres, uh, over many different centuries this was written. But through all of it, your goal, your purpose in this was to allow us to know you. So, Father, we want to know you, as we sang earlier. We want to hear your voice, and we want to do that this morning. God, I pray that you would uh, guard us, guard our hearts in this time, uh, as we look at a passage that is difficult. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last fall, we began a study in the pastoral letters. Um, those are, those are the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to two of his young apprentices, Timothy and Titus. Last October and November, we looked at the, the letter of Titus. And Titus was a pastor on the island of Crete. This letter gave him a counsel as to how to address a lot of the issues that were going on in that church. January and February of this year, we started a study in 1 Timothy. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his apprentice, Timothy aptly named, uh, who was pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. Now, one of the main issues that Paul was telling Timothy he has to address, and we looked at how Paul said this in the beginning and the end of the letter, was he had to stop false teachers. Because apparently there was people in that church that were trying to promote speculation, that were trying to lead people away from the faith. So Paul tells Timothy, you've got to stop these people. Instead, he says, you guys, you need to preach love. This is chapter 1, verse 5. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, we continued looking at chapter 1, studying uh, and asking the question, uh, how bad is too bad? This is verses 8 through 17. And we realize that for God, there's no such thing. 
As we continued, we saw the call for us to cling to our faith. You guys remember what we did that day? We had bars up here, right, that the kids hung on to? Remember that? Okay, good. Just making sure we're on the same page here. Chapter 2 started, and Paul's call to Timothy was to bring people to pray. And pray for all people. People in authority. And pray that they would come to a faith in Jesus Christ. Then on Valentine's Day, middle of, middle of the month, we started this really tricky, really challenging passage of Scripture, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. And on, on Valentine's Day, we did a message on Lady Gaga. Well, okay, so it wasn't technically a message on Lady Gaga, but it was a message about how she is known for her hair, her jewelry, her makeup, and, and Paul's call, Paul's summons to the ladies in the church in Ephesus was, don't be known for those things. Be known for your character. Be known for your good works. Be known for your profession of faith. Paul was addressing a new Roman woman movement that was going on in the city of Ephesus, and he was saying, you know, sometimes you've got to go against the grain. So be known for character, faith, good works. That was chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. This morning we tackle the next two verses in this section. Two of the toughest verses, at least I think, two of the toughest verses in Scripture. You can follow along up on the screen or in your own Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I am lucky Carly's not here. (laughs) Said or read like that, it seems pretty straightforward. Here's another translation. Slightly different, but still very, very similar. This is how the New Living. Paul says, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let a woman teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. I think it was like last June when I started looking at these pastoral letters and words like, oh my, wow, God, can we skip that passage? It's been a long time wrestling with these. What are we to do with this? Because there's been books upon books upon books written about these two verses. There's been blogs, there's been articles, there's been research papers written. There has been countless hours of debate among the theology students at Whitworth, let alone the thousands of other people who have ever talked about these two verses over the course of the last 1900 years. What are we to do with this? Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let a woman teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. It goes without saying that there has been a lot of speculation about what these verses really mean. What does the author, Paul, mean by this? What does it mean for us today in the 21st century? Realistically, uh, in the next 25, 30 minutes, I'm not even going to scratch the surface of how deep we could dig into these. We could spend months looking at this. We're going to do our best, okay? We first start with two questions that arise when you see a passage like this. The first is this. Was Paul giving a universal decree, an all-time command? 
Or was Paul giving an occasional instruction geared towards a specific circumstance? I'm going to cite my source on those two questions. It's Elena. She wrote a research paper on this. We're going to bring her up a little bit later to share. Those two questions. Was Paul giving a universal decree or command regarding women leading? You know, something to be followed forever and ever, all time, amen. Or was he saying, here's something that we need to address on this occasional instruction in a specific circumstance in a church in Ephesus sometime between A.D. 50 and A.D. 90. Can we take these verses at face value as they're read and directly apply them today? We're going to look at these. And I want to ask the question I asked when we first started. Are we willing to explore the potential that they may be different than they come across? Before I jump in, I want to to just say right off the bat that there are many God-loving, many God-fearing scholars and serious studiers of scriptures and, and regular people who spend time in the Word that could debate this and have debated this, and they could come down on either side of this equation, and they could argue it biblically pretty accurately. Okay? So, this morning, my prayer is that this sermon does not create division. It creates conversation and a willingness to at least explore. And I want to remind us what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 5. He said, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love. It comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Okay, that's a pretty long introduction. Are we ready to jump in? You guys are like, no, can I leave? (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly and submissively. Taken at face value, culturally speaking, back in the day when this was written, this would have fit really well with traditional Jewish practices, with traditional Jewish understanding of the relationship between men and women. One scholar writes, in the Jewish law, a woman was not a person. She was a thing. A woman was forbidden to learn the law. To instruct a woman was to cast pearls before swine. Women had no part in the synagogue service. They were shut apart in a section of the synagogue or in the gallery where they could be seen, where they could not be seen, and were not allowed to share in the service. A man came to the synagogue to learn, but at best, a woman came to hear. If that doesn't make sense, it'd be like me asking more than half of you females to go up into the upper room where we have a TV. You could watch the rest of this, but you're not going to actually be in here. Does that make sense? Okay. For Paul to say what he did in verse 11, it wouldn't have surprised any traditional Jew. But Paul was not writing to traditional Jews. He was writing to a Christian church in Ephesus. When we understand that, we might be able to see this verse slightly differently. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly and submissively. Did you catch that? Let a woman learn. Paul is giving women who previously had no right to learn, who were given no opportunities to learn, he's given them the freedom to learn, the freedom to study, the freedom to seek to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's huge. Yeah? 
Let a woman learn. Now, it gets sticky when he says words like submissively and quietly. The word submissively, because in verse 12 it mentions men, traditionally has been viewed as let a woman learn submissively or be submissive to men. But in the Greek word order and the syntax, it could just as easily mean let a woman learn in full submission to God. Could just as easily be saying that a woman's attitude must be one as a learner who has put her full submission, herself in full submission to God. This could change the way that a lot of people have taught this passage over the years, couldn't it? Yeah. Remember the story of Mary and Martha in the Bible. Jesus went over to their house for dinner, right? Martha was busy setting the table. She was busy basting the lamb. She was busy making sure the napkins were folded perfectly and the, the, the candles were set up and lit, right? Luke 10, verse 40 says, Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. What was her sister Mary doing? Okay, verse 39, same gospel. Luke 10, verse 39. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. Do you see what's taking place there? She sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. Jesus is already allowing women to be learners. See, people sitting near the teacher, that was the posture of learning that a disciple would take with the rabbi. And she's in a posture of full submission right at his feet. Jesus is already letting this take place. So Paul in chapter 2 verse 11 seems to be reiterating a lesson that Jesus already demonstrated. Let a woman learn in full submission to God. So what about the word quietly? I've heard way too many guys say, silence, woman. And women, I'm sure you've heard way too many men say that. So what do we do with that? Well, here again, understanding the culture and the context really helps. In that culture, when the men, when the rabbi and the men would study, when they would learn, it was okay. It was normal to debate back and forth. It was normal to question during the lecture. It would be like at any given time if I said something that didn't make sense to you guys. If I said something you disagreed with or if I said something you wanted explained further, you just interrupt. And you raise your hand and you ask. That's how it was. That's how they studied Scripture. For centuries upon centuries, the men would do that. Now, in this time, they would have learned some unspoken rules and some unwritten cues. Like, when would be right to ask the rabbi a question? You know, if he was speaking passionately and his voice was really high, maybe that wasn't the right time. Or if he was leaning forward just, you know, just right there, maybe that wasn't the right time. But if he's more relaxed and if he's more calm, maybe that was. The the men would have known these unspoken, these unwritten rules. So imagine a woman now, never having been invited into this circle, finally being invited in. All of a sudden, you're given permission. You're new to the assembly. You're excited. There's a desire to learn. There's a desire to figure out everything, the meaning behind what's being said. I mean, I can just imagine it. She's sitting there. Why did he say that? What did he mean by that word? I wonder how this could apply to me, to my kids, to my, to my husband, to the rest of my neighborhood. Up, up, up. Can you see how in this excitement it could get a little distracting? Can you see how if, there, if she doesn't know the unwritten rules, it might seem like it's a, a distraction? 
This happens to me every week at Awana. <laughs> Susan's like, yeah, it does. It sure does. I sit down to teach the kids a large group story time, and uh, at best, I get three sentences out. At best. Usually, it's only one or two, and somebody raised their hand. Well, what do you mean by that? I don't know that word. I like it. That's the way they learn. Yeah. So, Paul has given permission to women to learn. Join the assembly. Let's figure out what it means to follow Christ. I see him saying, don't, don't be so zealous, though, that you come in and you're gung-ho and you're interrupting all the time. Thus the word, quietly. Let's keep in mind, too, these are just two verses that we are pulling out of a bigger section of Scripture. This bigger section of Scripture talks about public worship. And Paul is addressing how public worship should be. You know, he talked about men lifting holy hands in prayer. There's other times in other letters that he wrote about how worship needs to be orderly. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, it says, For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. He's not a God of chaos, but a God of peace. Now, full disclosure, that's the first half of verse 33. The second half of verse 33, Paul goes on to say, and women should be silent in worship. Okay? I wonder if maybe they were having some of the same interrupting things that Paul was addressing in Timothy. Maybe. That's a whole different topic, or not different topic, that's a whole different passage in Scripture. So we won't spend much time looking at that. I share that verse in 1 Corinthians 14.33 to show that Paul encouraged orderly worship gatherings. So back in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul is allowing women to be learners, fully submissive to God, and doing so quietly. But this section, verse 11 and 12, is actually sandwiched by a couple of key words. The words self-control. In verse 9, Paul says, Likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. We've talked about that word in the past. Then again, at the end of the section, verse 15, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I don't want to oversimplify this verse because it is very, very challenging, but could it be that being sandwiched in between two calls for self-control, could it be that Paul is just giving some appropriate uh, guiding instructions about when and how much to speak? For the kids who are in here, might be a little bit confusing. Let me see if we can bring this to a level that uh, we'd understand. Around Easter time, uh, we fill a lot of plastic eggs with chocolate, right? And we have you guys go and we, we hunt for them. Now, when kids are young, the adults will say, okay, Johnny, you can have one egg today. And we do this to help them learn self-control and so that they won't get sick. Okay? As they age, as they mature... You know, Easter's that progress, we may say, okay, Johnny, this year you get to decide how many chocolate Easter eggs you eat today. But remember, if you eat too many, you'll get sick. So practice some self-discipline, some self-control. You see the instruction? Okay. This is guidance. And I could see Paul doing the same thing here in verse 11. Women, welcome. Welcome. We're glad you're learners. We love that you're now here with us. We love that you're so ready to place yourself at the figure of feet of Jesus, the figurative feet of Jesus, submissively. Let's all do this in a way that's orderly. Let's all do this in a way where we can learn together quietly. 
Could you see how verse 11 could be read like that? Listen to it again, keeping those things in mind. Let a woman learn quietly and submissively. It's potential that that's what he meant. Should we go on to verse 12? Somebody say yeah, because I've, I've prepared it. Okay, verse 12. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Oh, goodness. Now I've jumped. Yeah, I've jumped in now. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. It certainly doesn't get any easier with this one. For many a generation, churches have taken this verse very, very literally. And they have excluded women from any form of leadership. Okay? They have not been allowed to serve on boards as elders, as deacons. They have not been allowed to teach at best. Maybe they've been relegated to teaching other women or teaching Sunday school up until the kids get to about age 12 when they can no longer teach the young men because they're now young men. And the Bible says women can't teach men. The Free Methodist Denomination of which this is a free Methodist church, is known historically for splitting with the Methodist Episcopal Church over freeing slaves and over free seats and having freedom for women in ministry. The original founders sought the Scriptures. They prayed. They, they, they poured into this. And they said, you know what? From what we're seeing, women need to have the right to lead, to be ordained, to be able to be a senior pastor. They need to be able to play any of the roles talked about in Ephesians 5, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, as long as it is evident that that is a God-given gift and talent for them. Frankly, that needs to be the case for any man who was appointed. Is it a God-given gift or talent? So the free Methodist denomination, of which we're a part of, has said, huh, women can lead. Cultural context to this, because this helps. In the city of Ephesus, of which Timothy is pastoring a church, there is a shrine, or there was a shrine. I should even go bigger. There was a temple, the main temple of the goddess Artemis. The god Diana, it's the same, the same one. She was the goddess of fertility and reproduction. Uh, her followers and Christians didn't always get along very well. Uh, you can read Acts chapter 19 for that dialogue. So the temple of Diana, of Artemis, as befitting a female deity, was led by women. All the priests were women. Now to quote one modern day theologian, the women priests ruled the show keeping men in their place. The priestesses, and that's the only time I'll say that because it's just too many S's, the women priests were called melisei, which means bees. They were temple prostitutes. Now, since Artemis was a goddess of fertility and reproduction, we don't have to think too hard about what these women priests did as they led worship, about what their followers did as they worshiped together. For Paul, writing Timothy in a town where this form of leadership is prominent, it's understood, it is what people know, it's a little bit more easy, a little easier to understand why he would be saying, hold on a minute, let's, let's evaluate this. Because I think one of Paul's concerns is how the women in the church were perceived. Women in the church of Artemis had a certain perception about them. 
loose and immoral. The, the priests were that. Paul might have been saying, let's not get that same thing with the women in the Christian church. That's something to keep in mind as we progress, okay? We're going to look at two Greek verbs. The first is this. The first, the English translates to teach. It looks like that. Can somebody say it? Didaskeen, didaskeen. Your guess is as good as mine, and I even took Greek. So it means to teach. Now, in the pastoral letters, a didaskeen is used in contexts which express or imply the content of the teaching. Okay, catch that. So when this word is used to teach, it's implying what is being taught. There are times that this word is used when talking about the false teaching that Paul is so adamant needs to get stopped. You can see this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, 1, 7, 4, verse 1, 6, verse 3, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, Titus chapter 1, verse 11, and there are other places. Paul uses this word talking about the false teaching. Now, this word could also be used to talk about the instruction in the truth. Okay? The good teaching. The whole list of those verses in here too. 1 Timothy 1, 2.7, 4.11, 4.13, 4.16. I could keep going. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 has an example of both, actually. So if you want to flip your page, 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. And I'm actually going to start at the end of 2. Paul says, teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching. There's the teaching there is the word didaskeen, and it's talking about this word contradict. Okay? Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote godly life. So all the things that Paul has been saying, he's saying these teachings are true. So didaskeen, same sentence, highlighting two different things. Returning back to 2, verse 12, um, in this book, I Suffer Not a Woman by uh, Richard and Catherine Kroger, they actually looked very carefully at all the examples of Didaskeen, and they came to this conclusion. They said, Paul has made it clear that women were somehow part of or involved in some of the false teaching that was going on in this letter. Uh, in studying the other uses of didaskeen in the pastoral letters, these authors find that in chapter 2, verse 12, this is a condemnation for false teaching. They're saying, we believe the verb here in this verse forbids women to teach wrong doctrine. Such as in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, or Titus chapter 1, verse 9 to 14. Could it be that these authors are right? Countless books written on both sides. Just throwing this out as a possibility. Could it be that in verse 12, what Paul is really saying is, women, you're not allowed to teach false doctrine. It's one way of looking at that verb. Now, the next verb is the one our English translators translate as to exercise authority over. To assume authority over. Your King James versions will say to usurp authority over a man. It's the verb authentine. I remember at the beginning of the sermon, we looked at the word play and how uh, we imagined that it would be in this compilations of writing and only used once. That was priming the pump for this word. 
This word is used only once in the entire New Testament. There are other times in the New Testament where the idea of bearing power over is talked about, but different verbs are used. So oftentine is used only this once, and much like the word play, it can have multiple different meanings. Written documents, not in Scripture, but other documents from that time period show that this word can also mean, in fact, early on it was primarily meant to mean someone who was responsible for an action, especially murder. Someone who's responsible for murder. Now, it could also mean to rule or to dominate or to usurp, to usurp power, like we often translate it, or to take rights from somebody else. To claim ownership, sovereignty, to claim authorship, to claim that you were the beginning of something. These are all different things that this word could mean. And it's been found in writings way back then with those definitions. Now, we don't have time to look at all those possible definitions in conjunction with verse 12, but there's some interesting writings out there. I looked at a couple of uh, commentaries that I trust, some highly academic ones, um, and one of them, the, who study the Greek inside and out, the guy says that Paul seems to be saying that in verse 11, women must have their space and leisure to study and learn their own way. In verse 12, not in order that they may muscle in and take over leadership, as in the Artemis cult, but so that men and women alike can develop whatever gifts of learning, teaching, and leadership God has given them. In a different commentary, uh, the New International Commentary in the New Testament, they say that this word carries the negative valuation of the inappropriate exercise of authority, perhaps the domineer. So what they're saying is that for women then, um, for a combination of reasons, they may have been engaging in the activity of teaching and exercising their gift in a way that could have been seen as heavy-handed or disrespectful of their husbands spoke of how uh, in women wrestling leadership from the men in the culture, Paul was advising, hey, be careful that this doesn't happen in a negative way in the church. Does that angle make sense? Whether you agree with it or not, does it make sense that they could have been saying that? And I take this all to mean there might be a different way of translating it. It could be that after giving women the right to learn, Paul is saying, don't come in and try and steal all the leadership from the men like you see around you in the culture. Authentine. A word used only once that has several different meanings. It's confusing. And there's probably some unrest because for years and years and years, a lot of people uh, have looked at this and said, I'm going to take that literally. And there's people in here that, that take it literally. So my hope this morning is that we're able to at least ask the question, could it be that the meaning behind the word has actually been translated poorly? Could it be that it's been translated wrong? I don't know that's bold, coming from 1,900 years of translation, and I'm just some young guy at a small free Methodist church on the corner of Oak and Cortland. But could it be? My question for us this morning, hopefully, is a simple one. Are we willing to at least wrestle? 
Let's see, I've spent 35, 40 minutes looking at these two verses. I want to invite Elena up. Um, for those that don't know, um, yeah, you know how to turn it on. Go ahead and have a seat on the stool. For those that don't know, Elena has sensed the call to um, chaplaincy, to chaplaincy ministry. Okay? Now, to be a chaplain in our denomination, she has to be ordained, which is fine, because our, our, our conference, our denomination, ordains women. Okay? As a church, we've helped her discern this calling in the local ministerial candidate process, and she is now part of the conference ministerial process that is continuing to, to grow and groom her in, this, in these steps towards ordination. Now, Elena is also in full-time seminary. She recently wrote a 20-page paper on women in leadership in Scripture. Thank you for writing that. It gave me one more thing to read in this stack of things to read in preparation for this. It was a fantastic paper, okay? Um, So I've invited her up here to help paint a bigger picture. One of the errors that we can make in studying the Bible is to take a verse or two like we did this morning, pull it out of its context, and just examine it. Look at it so much that we forget what's going on in the, the verses immediately around it. And in the other letters that Paul may have written in the entire New Testament or in the entire Scripture. So Elena's here to help us look at a bigger picture. So, Elena, are there other places that the Apostle Paul writes where it seems that he does allow women to teach or to lead? Where it seems like he does allow women to speak? Yes, there are. Uh, <laughs> uh, If we look at Romans chapter 16, uh, this is a section where Paul is writing. um, He's closing out his letter, and he's sending his greetings to um, people that he has worked with and um, people in different churches and different areas that he knows. Um, The very first verse of that, he mentions a woman named Phoebe, and he calls her a deacon, which is um, a a title that we've learned about in Timothy. um, Yeah. And so yeah. um, Phoebe's a deacon, and so that uh, he doesn't call her a deaconess or anything like that. He just says, Phoebe is a deacon, and he commends her, um, and she, uh, so th- she's the first one. And then uh, he says, help her however she needs. She's been very helpful to many, including me. Um, and then later on in verse 3, he says, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. Well, Priscilla um, and Aquila, or a, a wife, Priscilla, and her, her husband, Aquila. And um, these two are mentioned several times in the New Testament, um, a couple times by Paul. They're mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, and he calls uh, Priscilla and Aquila his co-workers in the ministry of Jesus. And so um, this word that he uses for co-workers is the same word that he uses when he talks about um, Timothy. It's the same word he uses when he talks about Titus. Um, and uh, several others, and, uh, and he says, give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. So these, this couple is in charge of, um, they have a church meeting in their home, and, um, and he, he recognizes both of them as his co-workers. Um, and in, if you want to know more about Priscilla, in the book of Acts, um, it talks about Priscilla and Aquila um, they ran into this Jewish man who was um, a believer named Apollos. And Apollos was out teaching in the synagogue, and he knew, uh, he was, he was no, he knew the scriptures well, 
and um, had been there, and he was teaching people in the way of the Lord and teaching about Jesus and was very um, enthusiastic and he knew a lot, um, but he, he only knew about the baptism of John. He didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so um, the scripture says that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and they explained the way of God even more accurately. Um, and so here's an example of a woman, uh, Priscilla, being responsible for instructing someone um, about the scriptures and about Jesus. Um, so back in Romans, when, in Paul's uh, greetings to people, he also mentions a woman named Junia. And this woman uh, he calls outstanding among the apostles. So Junia, he's giving her the title of apostle. And this is a big deal because apostle is uh, one of those gifts um, of the Holy Spirit that we learn about in um, Corinthians and in the different Ephesians places. Five, yeah. yeah. Um, Can, what? what uh, oh. I'm, I'm going to interrupt just okay, for a second. Sure. That's in Romans? That's Romans, Romans 16, 16. 3? Uh, well, Junior's in Romans 16, 7. Does anybody have that? Pull that up really quick. Cause I what, does, does it have Junia in yours or does it have an S at the end? It has an S. Okay. Does anybody have just the one with Junia? Romans 16, 3. Okay, what version are you reading from? Okay, uh, when I was in the seminary, we actually looked at this. In the original texts, the S is not there. But translators have had issue with women leading, so they've added the S to make it a male name instead of a female name. Uh, and then there's one more example um, that I found from Paul's writing uh, in Philippians chapter 4, he mentions two women, Yodia and Syntyche. I don't know if I'm saying their names that right, but good to me. They're, they're both women. Um, and he says, he's, he's, uh, apparently these two women are having some kind of a disagreement, and he's asking Timothy to, to help them settle their disagreement. And he says, I ask you, my true partner, that's Timothy, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. So there's two more women that Paul is recognizing as um, women who worked alongside with him uh, as his co-workers in spreading the gospel. Interesting. So these are other places that Paul, who in 1 Timothy seems to be saying women don't teach, women be silent, other places that Paul writes and demonstrates that he has not only allowed them to, but that they have been vibrant and effective in their ministry. Very good. Um, how about times that Paul speaks just about humanity in general? Um, is, does it give us a clue as to what he thinks about guys, girls? Uh, so in Galatians chapter 3, we have a really um, uh, well-known section where Paul is talking about our identities um, in Christ. And he's talking about the ways that um, these former barriers, these former um, things that separated people kind of go away in Christ. Um, and he says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So here's Paul saying, uh, if you believe in Jesus, 
those things that used to separate us should go away. And uh, they, they don't exist anymore. We have a new identity as followers of Christ, and we're all Abraham's seed. Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when he's talking about uh, the spiritual gifts, he's talking about um, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church. Um, he says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Um, and this, the Holy Spirit, he decides who gets what gifts uh, and gives them as he wills. And so he's, he's saying here, it's not up to man what gifts people have when they become Christians. It's up to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit decides what gifts he's going to give. Fair enough. So again, a broader picture of the potential gifts of the things talked about in Ephesians 5. Apostle, preacher, evangelist, teacher. Okay, so let's go, let's go bigger picture. Uh, more than just Paul, how about in Scripture in general? Are there places that we see women leading and, and God, uh, I mean, supporting that, that, that show that God has, has backed um, women scripturally that have led? There, there are a few. It's rare. Uh, let's be honest. There aren't very many, but there are some. Okay, and the ones that we do find, um, they're pretty striking examples of women um, providing leadership to men. Um, so the first one um, that we find is um, Miriam. She's the sister of Aaron and Moses. And the scripture identifies Miriam as a prophet. And uh, she... She is uh, part of um, the group that comes out of Egypt in the Exodus. And uh, after they have passed through the Red Sea, um, she sings a, a beautiful song of, of praise to the Lord. And, um, and she's called a prophet. And then in Micah chapter 6, and Micah is uh, one of the prophets, uh, the Lord says to Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, and also Aaron and Miriam. So here's the Lord saying, I sent Miriam as part of the leadership for you. Um, and then there's another um, in the book of Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 22, there's uh, the, the scroll of the, the law has just been rediscovered in the temple, and um, the king uh, is wanting to, to know what is the significance for this, for, for, the, for the country, the land of Israel here, um, and for Judah. This is the king of Judah. Um, and so the king says to his, um, to his high priest and some of his advisors, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for all the people, for all of Judah, about what is written in this book that has been found. And so the priest, the Hilkiah, the high priest, and um, several of the other officials they go to seek the word of a Lord from a prophet. This prophet that they find, her name is Huldah. She's the wife of um, a tailor, and she's, she's apparently a well-known prophet because they go straight to her. And Huldah proclaims the word of the Lord to these men. And they take this word back to the king, and as a result, the king... Um, Puts in, sets in motion um, this widespread revival, and there's a, um, just a huge revival throughout Judah um, going back to the ways of the Lord. 
Uh, and then the third example, and I think this is kind of the most striking example, is the example of Deborah. And Deborah was a judge. So in the book of Judges, you know, you have the land of the people of Israel being led by these judges who are righteous people. Um, and they're all men with the exception of Deborah. But Deborah is not spoken of any differently than the rest of the, the judges. And in Judges chapter 4, it says, uh, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. So not only is Deborah a prophet, but she's also in charge of leading the whole land of Israel. She held court under the palm of Deborah between uh, Ramhand, Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. And uh, as I was doing my research, I came across um, something that said that the Hebrew word that was used to describe Deborah's leadership in this context is the same word um, that is used in the scripture to describe the, the leadership of Moses and the leadership of Samuel. And so Deborah is being placed as a judge on, a, on an equal footing with some of these other great leaders. Wow. wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, like you said, not, not too many places, but they're there. Okay, so um, Elena, here's a baited question. Not that none of these other ones haven't been. Uh, looking at Paul's writings, looking at the examples of women in Scripture, would you say, because I quoted your questions earlier, would you say that what we looked at today in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, is a universal, once and for all time decree by Paul, or was it a situational, um, some, some guidance for what was going on in that specific location? Well, no surprise, I would definitely say that this uh, instruction from Paul uh, had to do with the specific situation that was going on in Ephesus, and um, the evidence from the rest of the Bible and for the rest of Paul's writing um, tells me that uh, women should be allowed to lead. Okay. Thank you. Uh, you, can, uh, you can get off the hot seat. I, I appreciate that. And we yeah. A little plug for Elena. Elena will be preaching sometime in May because she's taking a preaching course through seminary. So we, uh, we will give her opportunity to do that, which will be, uh, we're looking forward to that. Um, what do we do with something like this? Because I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, if somebody is, is on the, the very literal side, they could very easily say, well, James is kind of looking like a false teacher who is promoting speculation. Or we could just be asking questions. So what do we do with it? I, I think we have to ask ourselves questions. And I think whether we are male or female, we need to ask first, are we sincerely learning? You know, verse 11, let women learn. Are we, male or female, learning? Are we seeking to know Christ? And when we do, are we coming in full submission to Christ? Are we saying, hey, you're in charge. If I understand something wrong, correct me. If I just need some love, love me. Are we coming in full submission to Christ? And is there a humility when we come? And is, is there a quietness in us, male or female, when we come before the Lord? Now, secondly, we ask questions about what are we teaching? Our lives teach, whether we are using words or not. 
And sometimes when we're talking with other people, literally conversation with them, we have to ask ourselves, are we teaching right doctrine? Do we know the Scriptures well enough? Have we sought God enough to know we're teaching right stuff? And finally, is there a power struggle going on? That, that, you know, are we trying to be in control of others? I think that, you know, if we're looking at that verb, authentine, meaning to wrestle away from, we have to ask ourselves, is there situations in our life where we may be wanting to be in charge and somebody else is? You know, maybe that's a boss, maybe that's a family member, a spouse, uh, kids, maybe it's God. Have we fully given him control? Those are some things we could wrestle with coming away from this. I want to finish with a pleading, a begging of you guys. Let this not be a divisive topic. I talked to a friend this morning. I've mentioned him before. He calls every Sunday to pray. And uh, he says, you know, we're we're not going to agree on this. But he says, it's ultimately not a salvation issue. That's right. And he says, I love you. You love me. And we're we're seeking God together. So my, my pleading is, let this not be a salvation, well, let this not be a divisive issue. If you don't agree with everything that's been said today, that's okay. If uh, Our hope, my hope, is that we've at least been able to wrestle with the potential of looking at something differently. Whether you think there is a scriptural mandate for women not to lead or to lead, I want to say this, Jesus is still in charge. Jesus is still on his throne. He still loves you and me, whether I'm wrong, whether you're wrong, whether I'm right, whether you're right. If we're seeking him, he still loves us. He's still in charge, even in topics that are hotly volatile. So we should wrestle with texts like this. I don't take it lightly, okay? We should wrestle with it, but I want to remind us, as I've reminded you a couple of times, what Paul said in verse 5 of chapter 1. Preach love. Can we do that? If nothing else, can we at least play nicely together? What did I mean by that? (laughs) Women in leadership. What a topic. And we've got one more week of it. Hot dog. Next week, verses 13 to 15, challenging ones. Okay? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we made it through this one. And I thank you. I thank you that we don't have to know the answers. I thank you that you have given us an entire book that helps us see some of your heart. And I thank you, Lord, that there's still mystery. We talked about that, I think, over Easter. I thank you that we can grab onto that mystery. And Lord, I pray that in something like this, uh, a topic that is so divisive, that we would be driven by love. Love for each other, love for those outside the church, love for uh, females, love for males. God, may we be driven by a, your love that, that came for each one of us. You felt us each worthy. So you came and gave your life. So God, may that be the driving force behind our interactions with each other. And may we be willing to uh, agree to disagree and still be focused on the fact that you are on the throne. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for loving us in return. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. <laughs> DJ, you put the first verse up there, first line. I thought, 
I, you know, Stacia, I looked at the song and I wondered, is that going to fit? Uh, I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'm not standing up here saying I'm 100% right, okay? I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. That's my prayer. Lord, let me walk close to thee. Oh, wow. This week, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May he smile upon you and be gracious to you. May he show you his favor and give you his peace. Amen? Amen. And amen.